1: Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, May 9th, 2014. We're up to episode 326 this week, and we're coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is my co-host and partner, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Joe, you know, uh, it's a beautiful
0: uh, spring day here. It's, it's, it's nice weather, it's, and it's, it's, I'm glad it's here.
1: Gorgeous out there. And joining us for the Roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. We'll bring him in as always for our Roundup. Today's segments include we're going to do an interesting interview following up on one we did maybe a month ago now with uh, Allison Johnson of the Multiple Chemical Sensitivity Foundation. She's the chair there. Looking forward to that. We'll, of course, do our halftime real quick, and then uh, come back with the roundup with Doctor Wow at the end. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at IE Connections. Dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Clean, C L E A N F A X dot com and CMM Online dot com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: All right, to join the show live, there are some new directions on our website iaqradio.com we're also including them with the show announcement we've got ways to join on your iPads and uh, iPods and um, all the all the new tablets and so on and so forth and on your phone so check those out at our website iaqradio.com of course you can always download shows from our website or the link that says go to show and from itunes we also have continuing education credits available just email me at joe.hughes h-u-g-h-e-s at i a q training.com and we'll get you out some uh, questions for the quiz last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
0: Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners, and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to czolotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you to our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, for his answers, vehicles and biomass as the largest sources of VOC emissions. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, May 9, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trs.com. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the former physician, professor, and Northwestern University who in 1950 proposed multiple chemical sensitivity as a distinct disease and is known as the father of clinical ecology. Back to you, Joe.
1: All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Allison Johnson, the chair of the Multiple Chemical Sensitivity Foundation in Maine. Um, Also, uh, she graduated in, uh, let's see, studied in uh, Carleton College and graduated at the head of her class. She also studied mathematics at the Sorbonne on on a National Science Foundation Fellowship and received her master's degree in math from the University of Wisconsin studying on a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. In 2010, she received a Distinguished Achievement Award from Carleton College for her work in the field of chemical sensitivity. She is also an author and has published three biographies, Wallace Stevens, a dual life as poet and insurance executive, Henry James, His Life Revealed Through His Letters, and Louis XVI and the French Revolution. She has also presented her book on Gulf War Syndrome, The Legacy of a Perfect War, and 9-11 documentaries on Capitol Hill in New York, Washington, and around the country and actually around the world. We're very happy to have her. We uh, had a show about a month ago, I want to say, with Steve Teams, and then afterwards Steve started to correspond with Allison and suggested we get her on the show, and now we've done it. We've got some music for you.
3: Industrialized, deodorized, Volatized for my demise. Pardon moi, don't mind me. I'm just allergic to the 20th century. Take me back in time where I am away. From pollution's contribution to a modern day. Where doctors don't just look at me and scratch their head.
1: Not allergic to the 21st century. I like that. Cliff, good job again. Uh, Allison, do we have you on the line?
4: Yes, I'm on the line. Welcome. Uh, would you mind if I just make one correction? Our foundation is called the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation.
1: Oh, the, not multiple. Okay, thank no, you.
4: No, I use the term multiple chemical sensitivity in my work but that would have been too big a mouthful for the name of the foundation.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for And
4: some that. people like one term and some people like the other so I straddled the fence.
1: <laughs> well, it seems like you probably have to straddle a little bit. You you're dealing with a um, a, a very uh, difficult I think sometimes for people to understand issue with respect to chemical sensitivity. I don't think anybody has trouble understanding that some people were sensitive to chemicals, you know, and that's that's everybody to some degree. I would imagine, even Doctor Weil, who isn't sensitive to much at all, when he gets around for formaldehyde, look at. So let's start by kind of defining. Um, do you want to define either multiple chemical sensitivity or chemical sensitivity or both?
4: Um, yeah, I'll define. I, I use when I'm talking. I use the term multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, people have been really arguing for decades about how to define multiple chemical sensitivity, MCS, and um, there really won't be a good definition until there's been a lot more research into the the physiological basis of it, but what I like to use, and uh, our foundation uses it on our website, is something that's called multiple chemical sensitivity in 1991 consensus, and there was a group of 34 researchers and clinicians who proposed the following criteria for the clinical diagnosis the MCS, and this is printed in a 1999 article in Archives of Environmental Health. And according to that definition, number one, the symptoms are reproducible with repeated exposure. Number two, the condition is chronic. Number three, low levels of exposure result in manifestations of the syndrome. Number four, The symptoms improve or resolve when the incitants are removed. Number five, responses occur to multiple chemically unrelated substances. Number six, symptoms involve multiple organ systems.
1: That sounds pretty detailed. Um, How is that as far as um, in the medical community? Can you talk to us a little bit about their acceptance of that definition? This was, what, 1991? 1999. Oh, 99. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. And then.
4: And there've been a couple of other definitions floating around. Mark Cullen of Yale um, Medical School, Yale Occupational Environmental Clinic, came up with one of the first definitions a years ago, and he's the one that came up with the term multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, and his definition, you know, was quite good too. Um, I think this nineteen ninety nine one is about the best that that one's going to come up with at the moment, but I can see why the medical profession in general um, you know is still waiting for something that they could pin down um, a little bit more, and that is the problem with the condition of multiple chemical sensitivity it It sounds vague to people because uh, there's just so much variety in the kind of symptoms that different people have. People are used to kind of clearly defined illnesses where you can say, okay, this is diabetes, people have these symptoms, these criteria, this blood test, et cetera. And there's nothing yet like that for multiple chemical sensitivity. Part of the problem is the research just hasn't been done, there's been virtually zero research done on MCS. And that's the problem because you're not going to be able to come up with a good definition and find some biological markers, um, biomarkers that calls for the disease until you begin to have research. But as long as you've got, you know, some people sort of saying, oh, they don't think this really exists. They think it's psychological. Then they don't even encourage people to do the research. People don't give research grants so people can do the research. So the people with multiple chemical sensitivity have been caught in kind of a vicious circle.
1: I'm curious, though, as far as chemical sensitivity, am I correct in my assumption when I, I did the introduction and, and we talked about this first question that the medical community does recognize there, that there is chemical sensitivity? Correct.
4: Well, I mean, now today too, for for my mind, I just the the terms chemical sensitivity and multiple chemical sensitivity are virtually interchangeable. I mean the the. The medical profession would recognize that there are certain people sensitized to isocyanides or various kinds of chemicals. And some people like to use a very narrow medical definition for sensitization. Um, And some people don't think we should even use the term multiple chemical sensitivity because it maybe doesn't fit into that very narrow definition. But my feeling is the word sensitivity is, such a generic term that is used so widely that, you know, it's still acceptable to use to describe the situation with that people have that suddenly begin to react to a lot of common, ordinary chemicals. I don't think the um, American Medical Association has really taken uh, uh, any clear stand on multiple chemical sensitivity. At this point, they're just sort of saying things like, well, it's speculative and there's not enough evidence yet. And, and, you know, it'll probably be a few years before they decide to, you know, do some studies and begin to come up with criteria that that they want to use. But I think just the fact that they're saying it's speculative, well, lots of things are speculative (laughs) in the beginning, and then eventually people realize it's a disease process. And, I mean, something like asthma is not clearly understood uh, you may not be aware of the fact, but many decades ago, when people, a lot of people, first began to be appearing with asthma, there was this ridiculous theory that people had asthma because they had domineering mothers. I personally know of someone uh, there who was taken away from his family, or the family was encouraged to put him in National Jewish Hospital in Denver. They had a lot of children that were actually taken away from the parents. And maybe not forced away from the parents, but encouraged to get away from the home because supposedly the, the mother was causing them to have asthma. I mean, it sounds absolutely ridiculous today. Wow. And I feel sorry for that young man I know who grew up, spent two or three years of when he was a, a child away from a family that was a very loving family and siblings, etc. So as I say, just because medical profession hasn't yet figured out what multiple chemical sensitivity is all about doesn't mean that they won't soon begin to figure it out. I've been actually um, interested to see how the trend is definitely toward more and more acceptance of multiple chemical sensitivity. I think people in the medical profession are beginning to scratch their head because they're seeing so many patients coming in complaining of it that they can no longer say, oh, these people are all a little bit crazy. You know, they're psychologically upset or something, it's just like so many people now coming in with it that I think they're beginning to think, hmm, I don't know what's going on here, but something seems to be going on, and I've run into a lot of people that say, well, yes, my doctor said, oh, it sounds like you have MCS, and it's not that they know what to do about it or anything, but they at least sort of recognize that. There is a condition, and talk about it now. So, just I've seen just a huge change in the you know 38 years that I've been following the field.
1: Oh, you've been doing this for 38 years? Interesting. No, I'm. Just... Well,
4: I I uh, developed uh, MCS myself uh, when I was uh, about 35 years old, and I had uh, suddenly developed migraines, but I was able to trace them right away to like. 12 hours, 10 hours before I had the migraine, I was exposed to smoke at a meeting, and someone was smoking cigarettes at a meeting in my kitchen. It was back in the days where you didn't feel you could ask somebody not to smoke, and she was smoking six or seven cigarettes a night, and uh, 10 hours later, I'd wake up with a migraine. I'd never had migraines before, and anyway, I was able to avoid the things that caused them. In my case, caffeine also caused them, and never had another migraine, and migraines are something a lot of people with mcs multiple chemical sensitivity have and i think an awful lot of them could be prevented if people just start keeping records and figuring out what might be causing them that
1: was another question i had cliff i'll turn it over to you in one minute let me kind of set the stage and then we'll turn it over to cliff so one of my questions was is is multiple chemical sensitivity mcs like a one size fit all kind of thing and so anybody who has it has certain reactions like a migraine do people with MCS always get migraines or is that just in your case?
4: No, uh, there's a real variety of of symptoms. You know my guess from talking to people is that um, migraines tend to be one of the more common common symptoms I suspect that over 50% of the people with MCS have migraines but I've no scientific proof for that on the other hand, um, and like in my family, with myself and my daughters, we don't have any respiratory issues, but most people, or an awful lot of people with MCS, would have conditions like asthma or what's called RADS, reactive airways disorder syndrome. What you do find now is for medical profession, they're using terms like that. They're very comfortable with talking about reactive airways. And people that don't want to use the term or talk about multiple chemical sensitivity will talk about people who develop breathing difficulties when they're exposed to perfume, et cetera. And I'm saying, duh, why don't you just call it what it is, you know, MCS? (laughs) Well, I mean,
1: I I sometimes wonder if maybe it's because, you know, they need a code uh, um, to help with payment for the treatment. Do you think that's uh, part of the issue?
4: Um. Yes, but I think too that um, the codes—you know—there isn't a code yet, and partly again it comes back to the same issue. We need more research to really figure out the 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 mechanism by which MCS um, gets started. I mean, why do people begin to react to these low-level chemicals that didn't bother them before? And but I think even if people had a code. They don't wouldn't quite know um, you know what to do for it. I mean, the medical profession can treat people's asthma and things like that, and so I don't think the codes are really hanging up the general, keeping the general profession from going ahead and treating it. It's more that people really aren't quite sure how to treat it because they're not quite sure how it's how the mechanisms are working out that cause these reactions.
1: Well, it also seems to affect different people in different ways. So that, that's got to make things a little tough as well, I would imagine. And if you don't know... Oh, what,
4: it's very puzzling. Yeah. In my case, my only other main symptom was I started getting um, really sort of strong joint pain one one fall. And... You know, can really feel my knee going downstairs and, and was having trouble raising my arms above my head in the morning and was able to trace that to our oil furnace in the basement because we always turned it on October 1st and we had an oil tank in the basement. Those always overflow a bit, so you've got so oil seeing down there. And we replaced that oil furnace with an electric boiler that fed the same hot water heaters upstairs. I never again had any joint pains and um, I don't anymore now, but I, up to a few years ago, was doing, you know, sixteen, eighteen 18-mile round-trip hikes in the Rocky Mountain National Park, and without a problem. And if I had believed when I went to a doctor at age, you know, about 36, say, gee, I'm having these uh, arthritic pains, et cetera, and the doctor actually said, oh, it's because you're getting older. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, I was able to hike. I was doing lots of hikes. Difficult hikes in my mid-60s in Rocky Mountains at, you know, 10, 12,000 feet altitude.
1: Wow. Cliff, let me turn it over to you.
4: Well, I think
0: Joe made an excellent point. You know, He pointed out that people who suffer from MCS have s- so many symptoms, and the symptoms are vague, and there's a very, very long list of symptoms, and unlike asthma that you talked about where People who suffer from it have the same symptoms. You know, with MCS, people have different symptoms, and I think that that's probably why the medical community has issue with it. Because you know, all other diseases you know have specific uh, symptoms, and this one does not. Um, I guess if more accommodations are being made for sufferers of MCS. And there is now greater chemical awareness and caution than there's ever been before in our history. How do you account for the increase in population claiming to be adversely affected by MCS?
4: Well, you know, I must confess when you had mentioned to me that you might ask that question, I actually burst out laughing when I read it because – and let me sort of explain to you why I did – your first part of the question you know there are more accommodations being made for sufferers of MCS I would say that accommodations would cover maybe only 1% or less of needed cases and also look at it this way when someone develops MCS before they develop MCS they're not asking for accommodations because they don't have MCS so they develop the accommodations being done aren't keeping them from getting MCS and there's been such a tremendous proliferation of chemicals every time someone rules to take care of one chemical like BPA and plastic bottles or, or something then there's another 10 or 100 chemicals come out and you never know if the replacement chemicals um, have problems it takes years to find out what their problems are and look at it this way too I, if you look at the groups that I've studied a lot, and I write about them in my book *Amputated Lives: Coping with Chemical Sensitivity*. And one of the groups I've dealt with are the Gulf War veterans from the 1991 Gulf War, and the World Trade Center first responders and people that breathe in those fumes and exhaled Valdez cleanup workers. Um, let's look like at the Gulf War people now. That's such an example of people being caught in situations where they have big chemical exposures. I mean, just like from the oil well fires burning that were so, you know, they were soot all over people and they were breathing these horrible fumes, et cetera. And they didn't have any choice, they couldn't get away from it. And they had all these other chemical exposures uh, in, the, in the Gulf War. And so you had a lot of people who were really very healthy ended up developing multiple chemical sensitivity. I have not run into one of the people who have developed what's known as Gulf War Syndrome, which is about a third of the people that served in the Gulf War, according to studies. I've not run into one of those who does not tell me they are not now very sensitive to chemicals. All of a sudden they can't stand it if their wife uses nail polish or if someone wears perfume or something. And I like to point to examples like that, too, because... A lot of times people in the past tried to make out this is just a bunch of neurotic middle-aged women that don't like perfume or have a problem with chemicals. These people have fought and go for it. These are kind of like, you know, about as macho as you can get. And the last people that you would expect to be malingerers or hypochondriacs, but they developed MCS. And, and I don't think, you know, there's been enough caution. I mean, I think the military is now getting a little interested, and I've tried to work with the the DOD, um, I mean, make my materials available to them, but also with the World Trade Center where people went in to clean up and had those horrible exposures, uh, people weren't cautious enough. The Christy Tow Whitman was down there five days after the attack saying the air was safe to breathe, and... There's a lot on my documentary on, it's called The Toxic Clouds of 9-11, A Looming Health Disaster, and that can be played on YouTube, and there's a lot there about how people were very adversely affected by Christy Tile lack of caution, which meant everybody was, they were forced to go back to work if they told their employers they didn't want to go back to work, close to ground zero, where the fumes were terrible and the smoke went on for months. They were told you have to come back to work or you're going to lose your job because the EPA says it's safe. So I really uh, disagree with your your feeling that there's greater chemical awareness and caution. Greater chemical awareness, but I don't think the caution's keeping up with the need. Well, there's one
1: I I, I have to say there's one area where I think we're being a lot more cautious and that is with respect to smoking indoors. Um I would Absolutely. say yeah and and do you think that has helped to some degree i mean that you know i know my own i have some sensitivities to cigarette smoke because of the way i was brought up but it doesn't seem to be um jumping over to any other chemical sensitivities it's it's that specific thing if i get in a room with cigarette smoke i you know there's certain things i know are going to you know to some degree or another going to happen so i think we've I do think we've been accommodating in that way and I know there's a lot more awareness within like I teach people how to do uh, for instance mold remediation or indoor environmental quality consulting. There's a lot more awareness in those industries um, about ensuring that we're, we're cautious when we work with people in their homes and in buildings you know that that may have sensitivities to different chemicals so I can see your point but do you think, People, I mean, there does seem to be more people developing these sensitivities with the Gulf War people and the 9-11 responders and some of the others. Um, why do you think that's happening? Is there any medical evidence that shows that, you know, this could be happening because we're being um, ex- not exposed to enough at an early age or, or whatever the case may be?
4: Well... Um, In this case, I don't think it has anything to do with not being exposed enough at an early age. That tends to be more ordinary allergies. Some people are arguing about that, but ordinary allergies are totally different from most of chemical sensitivity, Mm -hmm. which is really an allergy. Sometimes one loosely says, I'm allergic to smoke or something just because it's shorthand. But so it's a different mechanism. Um, my feeling is, again, that there's just way too large a proliferation of chemicals. And sometimes, too, you know, I agree, it's been wonderful what's happened with the cigarette smoke. I mean, when I developed multiple chemical sensitivity at age 35, that was a huge problem. People were still smoking on airplanes. They were smoking in grocery stores. They were smoking at work. And now that's changed. But the cigarettes... And the smoke has been now things can get replaced by something else. Air fresheners probably uh, you know are going to to affect almost equal numbers of people, and those are kind of coming in now. The people selling them are trying to get them used more and more frequently so it's like you you get rid of one problem and, and another one comes along. But I do think that uh, and certainly the cDC policy. Uh, banning air fresheners in all CDC facilities in the whole country is a move in the right direction. And by the way, I think the fact that the CDC actually says in their policy that, um, and I quote, fragrance is not appropriate for a professional work environment and the use of some products with fragrance may be detrimental to the health of workers with chemical sensitivities, allergies, asthma, and chronic headaches slash migraines. Flyers say to people, look, de facto, the CDC really is recognizing multiple chemical sensitivity because four different places in their indoor environmental quality policy, they mention chem- the word chemical sensitivity or chemical intolerance. So they get it now. The problem, the underlying problem by society in general and the, the establishment, the medical establishment. Establishment's been reluctant to move too far. Is that there's tremendous pressure from industry. You can imagine that the CDC, they're under tremendous pressure from the air freshener industry because it's not going to be helpful to the air freshener industry for the CDC to say, you know, no one is allowed to use these in our uh, facilities around the country. And the CDC is the top health agency in the country, the National Institute of Health, is a subsidiary of the CDC. Uh,
0: I I think I need to get a couple words in. Uh, You know, in, in terms of chemistry, Uh, let's take pesticides, for instance. You know, many pesticides are no longer permitted to be utilized, and I think it would generally be acknowledged that the pesticides that are permitted to be used today are significantly safer than pesticides that had been previously utilized. In terms of making air fresheners and even cosmetics, there's an organization called the Research Institute for Fragrance Materials, and they do a tremendous amount of studies, they do research, and they put out a list on an annual basis of which materials, you know, can be used, which materials cannot be used, and that list shrinks all the time. So I think that industry is trying to cooperate and, you know, trying to do the right thing. And I think if we look at a ruler, on both sides of the ruler we have extremes. And you may say that you know, on one side, we have uh, chemical minimizers, and that might be industry and so on and so forth. And, you know, would you agree that on the other side, uh, you have chemical maximizers?
4: Well, in the first place, I, I don't quite understand your terms, because you say industry, it's so a chemical minimizers. I think industry is the people who are using a lot of chemicals, and the people on the other end of the spectrum are people who want to use Fewer, minimize the use of chemicals. Um, I mean, there certainly are are people in at both ends of the spectrum, regardless of how you want to to name them.
1: Okay, and I think yeah, I think the terminology may have been. I, I think what he's saying is that some groups say that you know we should be able to use whatever chemicals we want. Those are the chemical minimizers that that the chemicals aren't causing the problems that people think, but. I think it's an important um, topic that we're talking about, and there are definitely two sides to the story. But I, I'm very interested in what got your interest. With respect to, we had Steve Teams on the show about a month ago, and that's how we ended up talking to you as well. And I know he's working with you now. What in particular about his, I guess, theory on chemical sensitivities, you know, piqued your interest?
4: Well, I just listened carefully to the interview, and by the way, as a result of the interview, we invited Steve's teams to join the board of directors for the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation, and he's making great contributions. I was very impressed with—he uh, had a very strong uh, knowledge and background in biology and chemistry. I, you know, I tend to listen to interviews or read articles about multiple chemical sensitivity and find myself disagreeing with a lot of what the person is saying. And I was, to my surprise, finding that I found hardly anything in that interview that I would quibble about, which is really pretty amazing because I do tend to be fairly um, critical about how I approach these issues, and there is a lot of misinformation out there. And I... um, I just found Steve to be extremely articulate, and I thought you'd ask good questions, and, and the whole interview, as I say, it led me to uh, a move that's been very efficient for the board of the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation. So, uh,
1: and Steve, Steve's a great—he's a good friend, and he does a great job. But I, I guess going back to what Cliff was saying. Um, I don't get the impression that you're saying we should just quit using chemicals. There's no good chemicals, and that you know they can't be used safely. Is that accurate to say?
4: Oh yes, I mean of course we're you know using chemicals constantly. I mean we all live in houses that have, or for sure, we still live in houses that have been painted and varnished and things, and uh, and we all drive. Automobiles. I mean, I think people in the chemical sensitivity community do have to realize at times that while they want to get rid of this and that, other things, they don't really want to get rid of automobiles and gasoline. They're not ready to stop doing that, even though gasoline fumes will make some people sick and diesel exhaust will make people sick. So there certainly are chemical uses that, that we, and exposures, that at least affect a lot of people that are difficult to avoid. And um, and we all do have to heat our house one way or another. So there definitely is a choice. But in terms of things that can be, you know, that really aren't essential with life. Like, you know, perfume may be very pleasant by people who really like to wear it, but it's not an essential life. And same thing with air freshness. I mean, it's... You can do without air fresheners a lot faster than you can do without um, gasoline and and diesel fuel and automobiles. So you do have to make some choices in life about where you want to take the risks. Allison,
0: whose fault is it when someone develops multiple chemical sensitivity or environmental illness?
4: Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting question and. let me mention again my own experience of uh, one of the last contributing factors was that right after I got married and we'd moved to Maine I loved all the old antique furniture and I bought old furniture and we didn't have much money so I'd buy old things on the cheap and refinish them so I was stripping a lot of furniture and you know Maine winter is pretty long and I would be using strong paint strippers you know in a Bedroom, and it would say on the can uh, use of adequate ventilation, slide open the window three inches, you know. Yeah. And I think I kind of set myself up to uh, get MCS from that. And there's certainly cases I know where people they themselves used a the strong pesticide or use pesticide in their house and developed MCS. So, in some cases, a person actually has themselves done the last action that kind of precipitated or seen precipitate. Um, the MCS would be the straw that broke the camel's back, but on the other hand, they were using products that someone was selling and making it feel like it probably was okay, certainly in in the case of um, the government. I mean, I think you'd say the government was quite at fault after the World Trade Center for a lot of people developing MCS because they didn't alert people about the possibility of I mean, that's an example. You had all those people down at ground zero with everything around them, cover of dust, everything. And of course their first impulse in a lot of cases was we gotta move away. We gotta move to the upper west side or east side. We've got to get away from ground zero. No one was telling them, uh, you've got to stop and think. If you move into a to a different apartment, they're probably gonna put in new carpet and new paint, and these people were already so sensitized to chemicals from the exposure grounds, you well, they're going to get sick from that new apartment. So there, there are lots of cases in which a government or somebody manufacturing chemicals is, has, I think, the primary responsibility.
0: The reason that I asked the question um, is that, you know, one of the things that Dr. Wild taught me, and I think has taught our listeners uh, uh, over the years, is that, you know, one of the things none of us can change is the deck of cards that we're dealt when we're born. And I think some people have a genetic predisposition for tolerance, and I think some people have a genetic predisposition for intolerance. And I think a lot of times, you know, some people react, some people don't. And I think that, that there's a big difference between Gulf War situation and World Trade Center situation and air fresheners or, 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 or fragrance. I think that there's really a dramatic difference. Um, but, you know, in, in any event, I just wanted to get in the, the, the fact of uh, of genetics. And yes. that, was, that was really uh, the reason that I uh, you know, raised, the, raised the point. So, yeah,
4: and the air fresheners, it's not so much that they will necessarily generate MCS in the first place. It's so once people are sensitized, they become a huge problem. It's not like they are a problem equivalent to the World Trade Center attacks or the Gulf War. It's that once you've got people sensitized, then they make life miserable for those people.
0: Gotcha. You know, one of the things that I guess troubles me a little bit about, you know, the air freshener uh, situation or, or the perfume situation is, you know, I think it's undeniable that certain people have, sensitivities and and allergies and are going to react to these things. And I think one of the challenges for me is when someone smells something and said, I smelled something and I'm ill, therefore what I smelled made me ill. And they focus on that and they convince themselves of that when in reality there are other things that they could have reacted to that they don't even think about. You know, uh, many people are allergic to mold, and and I don't think I've heard you mention the word mold any time uh, during this interview yet. You know, we've mentioned air fresheners and all sorts of other chemicals, and, you know, molds produce uh, a lot of issues. And we have a lot of people that are allergic to dust mites, and, you know, they sleep on pillows and they put their face in it, and, and they cause... A lot of issues and uh, yes you know, so I, I, don't, I don't know that a, that a person can actually make their own diagnosis uh, as, to, as to what's wrong with them and I think one of the things that happens with this is many people do make their own diagnosis I mean they're the ones that determine that's what
3: they have.
4: Well mold I, I mean I uh, just because they haven't come up yet doesn't mean that I don't think it's huge. Mold is a huge issue for people with multiple chemical sensitivity it's mostly the the uh, VOCs the volatile organic compounds that are given off by mold um, people that are have a true allergy to mold and react to the spores that's something totally different but most people with MCS are very reactive to the the VOCs given off by mold and that is huge and i do agree with you it is very often hard to sort out what what symptom could be resulting from what exposure. But just because you have an occasional MCS people, and I certainly sort of run into them and say, well, I smelled this, then I felt bad, that's the cause. But I think in general, people with MCS tend to have established over a long period of time that, oh, every time I run into this, then I, you know, my lips swell or the next day I have a headache or this, that. Most people have fairly instant reactions, so they're more likely to say, oh, gee, you know, every time I eat chocolate, I get a headache right away, or this or that. So I think people um, usually come to a conclusion about what's bothering them by multiple exposures in which they develop that symptom, and it's certainly true in my case. It's harder if you have delayed reactions, and um, and actually, industries become very smart about how to to fight cases. Because, like with the Exxon Valdez cleanup workers, they were able to say, "How do you know that cleaning up this these oily beaches did it? How do you know that it wasn't you know these chemicals in your home or this or that?" That's part of the why one can never get anywhere, um, you know, in the legal system trying to prove that you know certain substances destroyed your health. It's all a very complex issue. And um, but I think, on the other hand, it's not that a person could go to a doctor and say, can you prove that it was this or that substance in my environment You yourself to do a lot of detective work on your own who are keeping records and thinking about it.
1: Allison, let me, um, Cliff, let me get with you for a minute. We did not do our halftime and thank our sponsors. And we're coming up on um, the roundup. I'm thinking maybe we should just thank our sponsors now, take a 90-second break, come back. You and I can ask one more question and then jump into the roundup with Dieter.
0: That's fine, Joe. That makes sense.
1: Great. All right. Allison, if you could hang on for 90 seconds, we have to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with Allison Johnson, the chair of the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation. We were having so much fun, got so wrapped up in it, we forgot to thank our sponsors at halftime. We'll be right back. (laughs) Thanks to our
2: association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers. To provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends
2: Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine,
2: your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: All right, we're back for the rest of our interview with Allison Johnson, the chair of the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation. Cliff, I'm going to turn it back to you for a minute. I'd like you to ask one more question. I'll ask one more, and then we'll bring Dr. Wow in for the roundup.
0: Okay, um, Allison, you know, you mentioned that you've looked at you know, a lot of work by doctors, you know, medical profi- uh, professional scientists, and so on and so forth, and generally uh, – and, and sometimes you're critical – uh, of their work. Um, on your video, you have an interview with Dr. Ann Steinemann, and she talks about work that she did with Dr. Stanley Caress, and there's actually a transcript available of you know what she said, and I think even goes into greater detail. Uh, any comments on or any criticisms on her work?
4: Um, well, first let me say that um, I'm not a, a chemist, so there, I couldn't go into any real detail. I would. Um, the one thing I have uh, sort of argued with Anne about when we were filming things was that she is quite intent on showing or talking about the products that are are marketed as being organic or green, etc., you know are almost as bad as the others and I keep arguing well it seems to me that they're much better and you know you can't have everything perfect so we have um, you know debated about uh, that point but I think her work has been amazing though for giving the scientific underpinnings for what we need to prove that there are some toxic substances in these fragrance products because before it was just People saying, "Oh, I think people just don't like those. They just need to get used to them to the odors." And she has really shown that there are a lot of um, toxic, toxic or hazardous products associated with with some of these products, like fabric softener and detergents and air fresheners and perfumes, etc.
0: Yeah, one of the things that she said, and I'll just quote it: that there is no safe exposure level for many chemicals, and that was one of the things that I probably most disagreed you know, with what she said, because the dose makes the poison, and in certain situations, you know, something can be uh, curative and, you know, have, have, have benefits uh, in, in certain levels, and if you abuse it, uh, if you don't use enough of it, it doesn't work, and if you use too much of it, uh, it, it doesn't work, but I'll, I'll turn it over to Joe, because I know we're running out of time.
1: Allison, I I have a question on how we as indoor air quality professionals, um, any tips you can give us, people who do inspection and those who do remediation of indoor environments, can you give us some tips on how to work with people with multiple chemical sensitivity?
4: You know, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I guess my first point would be, You know, cut them a little slack. It will seem weird a lot of times for things they say or that they're worried about this or that. But you have to realize, and with a lot of these people, they feel like they're about one step away from being on the streets or living under a bridge. And, you know, most of us in the world aren't living like that. And that really can make you sort of, you know, argumentative at times, desperate. I mean... Desperate people aren't always the easiest people to work with. Now, plenty of the people that you would have consulting you don't fall in that category, but I'm saying when you run into the occasional person that you just think, oh, this person's too much to deal with, just sort of say to yourself, I'm so grateful that I don't have this condition, and someday I or some member of my family or friends might get the condition, and I'll try to do what I can to help them. But I would also say... You know, take it seriously when they say that such a such substance bothers them because they're the person who is, is most likely to to know that, and everybody has their own triggers that bother them more than other things.
1: Let me add on to that a little bit. I, you know, I work with, I actually teach people how to work in, in these environments and, and doing indoor air quality and mold, et cetera. And I, I do mention that that you know you have to kind of put yourself in the other person's shoes but then and i also try and get them to let the people talk because oftentimes i find that they get cut off in the middle of uh, a discussion or sentence but on the other hand if i'm a professional doing a job time is money and some of these folks can go on for a long time it's like no one has listened to their point of view for a long time and has really cared enough to sit and listen to them but how do i show that um, that I don't want to call it sympathy that that um, uh, respect for their opinions and, and trying to learn about where they're coming from but at the same time try and keep it um, to the point where I'm not sitting there for two or three hours getting the full background on everything they've done over the last 20 years I mean do you have any suggestions oh. for that?
4: for that because a lot of people call me up, and, you know, it's it's difficult because a lot of times they'll try and tell me all about their MCS history, and I finally have to say, hey, there's 10 million of you out there. I simply don't have time to talk to all of you on the phone and hear all of your story. And I think you're probably the, you're right to sort of point out to them that, you know, you're willing to listen to their story, but they should be aware of the fact that the clock is ticking, and it does increase the cost, and, you know, again, say that you do have a fair knowledge already of multiple chemical sensitivity, but it is a problem because, uh, you know, people, say, they have so much pent-up, you know, health problems that they're eager to tell people about, and I've had people say, I'm going to give you a 30-second version, and they're still talking four minutes later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I, what I do sometimes is I suggest that we have them write it down and then, you know, I can take it with me and look at it kind of at my own pace and, and on my own time. That's a, great,
4: that's a great idea, a very good way to handle it.
1: Okay. All right, I'm glad you agree. Let's, let's talk, we're going to go to our roundup. We're going to get Dr. Dietrich Wow in here. We're going to get uh, Allison Johnson back with us. Let's uh, get the roundup music queued up, and then we'll be right back with Allison Johnson, the chair of the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation.
3: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up Move him on, move him on, hit him up Raw high Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in Let him out, cut him, him out Ride him in, raw hide.
1: uh, What do you think, Cliff? Do you want to do one and then get Dieter in, or just go straight to Dieter?
0: Um, Let's see. No, you
1: can go straight to Dieter. All right, let's Let's go straight to the good doctor. (laughs) I still like that music, Dieter. (laughs) Hey, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. All right, Dieter. I, I know you've got a comment or two on this one and maybe a question. Yeah. Yes, I do. And I
5: uh, <laughs> I have a very basic question, uh, and I'll get uh, to a couple of other ones later on. Uh, anyway, we say uh, multiple chemical sensitivity. When it says multiple, is that two or more? Or if I am sensitive to one, is that already chemical sensitivity but not multiple?
1: That's a good question. Allison, I mean, how do you define multiple? Is it just a few chemicals or many, many chemicals?
4: Well, uh, I, I wouldn't give a precise definition of it, but I would say this. It's virtually impossible to find anybody who's chemically sensitive who isn't sensitive to more than one chemical. It's almost, if you ask enough questions, they'll, they'll tell you, uh, oh, yes, so-and-so, yeah, that does give me a headache, or, you know, makes my lips burn or something, and you will we'll soon find out that they have more than one. Uh, oh, okay.
5: All right. uh, the other thing, and I think we have to be very careful here, uh, there is a difference between sensitivity and sensitization. Now I am. There is no doubt in my mind. I am sensitized to poison ivy, and I have the classical symptoms. I'm sure I have circulating antibodies for the rest of my life, and I by now have learned um, uh, to stay away from poison ivy. And you mentioned isocyanates before, and there were people, uh, which is very interesting. They were sensitized. To an isocyanate, the one case that I can remember is TDI, toluene diisocyanate, that's the isocyanate from which we make soft foam uh, on which you are sitting when you're buying a car. I think they are, uh, I don't say 100% often, I think most cars uh, uh, are made with uh, polyurethane foam and, and we sit on it. Anyway... And we identified circulating antibodies. We could find those very. You know, it took us quite some time, but now I don't think that yeah, when we want to define multiple chemical sensitivity, can we take a blood sample and say, "Bang, yup, here it is. This one looks different from another person who doesn't have the sensitivity." I never heard of it, but that could
1: that very well be a new uh, situation. Allison, anything like that available uh, yet? Yes, we
4: certainly are not at the stage where we have any biomarker like a blood test. And Dr. Christina Oliver, who talks extensively on my latest documentary, a Multiple Chemical Sensitivity, a Life-Altering Condition, she talks about how there simply isn't a diagnostic test that we can use yet. I do think if enough research is done, that we may come to the point where we can see certain patterns of, that perhaps there will be a blood test or other tests that can identify multiple chemical sensitivity, but we aren't there yet. And part of it is because its because there has been, fortunately, no money spent. Now, there are other countries The Japanese government, even 10 years ago, had put a million dollars into MCS research. Not too much, but that's about a million dollars more than's been done for research in the United States, and there's research being done in Italy, um, Spain, et cetera. Sooner or later, this um, will be. There will be answers uh, come, I think, and so, and I think that day is is hastily approaching, quickly approaching. Yeah, all right. Another term you use, and I have
5: a question about that. Is that well, there are. Ordinary allergies, I guess when you talk about multiple chemical sensitivities, uh, you have one thing in mind and you compare that to ordinary allergies. Is there a difference in your mind?
4: Oh, I think it's a huge uh, difference. Uh, the, The allergies that are caused by IgE, associated with IgE antibodies, about, oh, I don't know, maybe it was 30, 40 years ago, the professional allergy associations carved out their territory and said, we are only going to use the word allergy for reactions that involve IgE antibodies, and basically said, we don't want to of people with NCS coming in our doors, and I think that's fine. They've defined what they mean by the word allergy. I never touch the word allergy, uh, i.e., always discourage anyone with multiple chemical sensitivity from using the word the old I would use it if I go to some party and the hostess is serving a chocolate cake I say I'm sorry I'm allergic to chocolate because I don't want to say I've developed a food intolerance for chocolate right. so in general they're two very different things it's a probably a very different mechanism that is at work in multiple chemical sensitivity so just lay it aside the problem is anyone that develops chemical sensitivity, and they say themselves, I'm now allergic to chemicals, and they go see an allergist, and the allergist throws up their hands. I think the allergist used to say, oh, we just think that's weird. I think the allergists now think it's real because we've got a lot of people coming with it, but we're not the people to work with it, and allergy shots contain uh, preservatives like penals, so those don't agree well with people with MCS. All
3: right.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Dieter, any news? Yeah, the other problem, not the other problem, but where I have a big question, Marcus. I don't know whether you know, military people, before they go to combat, including the Gulf War and all of that, uh, get, I mean, huge amount of vaccinations.
4: I have no capture ca- on that in my book, Gulf War Syndrome, A Legacy of a Perfect War.
5: And, uh, I mean, uh, they don't get vaccinated against smallpox, you know they get vaccinated against A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I mean, you name it. Isn't that possible that these people, due to those chemicals and these drugs, these vaccines are chemicals, that they become more sensitive to a bunch of other ones to which they are exposed? It makes a lot of sense to me.
4: Well, it's definitely a contributing factor, and I talk about that in my book. There have been... uh studies, though, that tease out some of the differences, like you had certain people that received the vaccines that didn't go to the Gulf War, and you had certain people that went to the Gulf War that didn't receive some of the vaccines, so you can see that, that you couldn't conclude that the vaccines alone are the cause of Gulf War syndrome, and so it's uh, in, in my book, I have a chapter about each of the possible different causes of Gulf War yeah. syndrome, and, there, and a lot of them just kind of mixed together, and all are contributing. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you're 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 exposing.
5: And if you if you inject chemicals into the body, I mean, you are. Uh, this is not insignificant little attack. And in fact, a lot of people react to those chemicals that are being injected into them. Yep. It's not that you just walk away and say, "Okay, now I'm fine." Uh-uh, that doesn't work that way. And the other thing uh, with the EPA. It is incredibly difficult. Yeah, we say, well, people got exposed to whatever during 9-11, and the EPA EPA was there. They have some target chemicals or substances, let's say, and they measured those, and I said, hey, they are not really all that bad. And on the other hand, they can't measure, you know, a thousand of them and then figure out which one is good or bad for you or should be uh, eliminated or should be avoided. And another thing, well, that is just one of my, my other thoughts. And you mentioned that unfortunately in Washington, a lot of people are lobbyists and unfortunately the lobbyists are running our country. Most of them you never voted for. Most of them you never meet. And, uh, they do more damage than the people we elect, uh, elected. Uh, so, uh, and they, yeah, they're they're lobbyists who work for chemical companies and drug companies and all of that. So, on the other hand, we still do not have, and I think Joe asked that, and I think you answered it in the very beginning of the show. We don't really have a a a number, a a criterion or criteria. I don't know that says okay, this person has uh, multiple chemical sensitivity, and therefore. Uh, he or she is uh, 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 sensitive, we we can't really, we, we don't really have a well-defined diagnosis to say, yep, it's yes or it is no.
4: Yes, and, and that is a problem. But there's certainly been disease conditions like this before in, in the world that simply you can't pin down a definition. If you ever try to pin down a definition of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, a lot of that is what a person tells tells a psychiatrist is, you know, I see little green men or I feel, whoa, I feel like taking my own life. But this is that there really are conditions in which you don't, it, it's obviously a very clear disease entity, but you can't do a blood test and say, you know, Okay, this person is bipolar, or this or that, etc. You know, I Please. think that's. I don't a, think you can. That's a
1: great yeah. example, Allison. I, I like that example. Um, I think that would help a lot of people understand a little better why we're not there yet. And, you know, how long have we known about people having voices in their head telling them things? And you know, we've known for you know, maybe 100 years of this, maybe longer. And and still, we don't have an answer to why that's going on. So it may take a long time. Dieter, let me ask you a question. And, and Allison, are you in a hurry to get off here because we're running a little over? No, logo, not at all. But, Hey, since we, we run this show, we can stay as long as we want. Um, but anyway, I'm curious, Dieter, in all your years of doing uh, industrial hygiene, um, do you think maybe you've run into people that had – an overexposure to a certain chemical in the workplace, and then they start to have problems that are seem unrelated. Do you run into that much? Mm. No, I have not. And that was the, uh, I, I
5: remember that from 40 years ago or 30 years ago when I was in school, uh, that it was a kind of that multiple chemical sensitivity was you got one huge exposure, And that one was the culprit, and now you are sensitive to all the other chemicals. I have never seen that. I have seen very specific sensitizations, and that was the the infamous uh, isocyanates, toluene diisocyanate, And it took us a long time to figure that one out. I mean, it took us years to find the antibodies and identify them in blood samples. We had one poor guy, that guy he took several pints out of him, <laughs> and uh, but anyway, now that was a true sensitization. There were circulating antibodies, and when that person got re-exposed to t d i, he would react violently. I mean, with breathing problem uh, problems and uh, bronchospasms, I mean it's uh, you better have a doctor next to you. With adrenaline, <laughs> uh, you got to watch out very carefully over there. The only good thing with him was he only reacted to TDI, Toluene Diisocyanate, and in a normal life, I was exposed to TDI frequently when uh, many years ago, thirty years ago on basically a regular basis, not at high doses, but I was exposed to them. I didn't develop any sensitivity or, for that matter, sensitization. But, I mean, uh, uh, if uh, in normal life, if I had to be sensitized to something, I take TDI or MDI, another isocyanate, in it, because in normal life I would never encounter them. If I go into the car, there's no more TDI in there. That is fully reacted. I sit on it on the foam. So that is fine. And uh, it's the same thing with me with poison ivy. I'm not uh, sensitized to anything else but poison ivy. And by now I know what it looks like, and I'm not going to touch it. Believe me.
1: (laughs) I Well, I, I appreciate that. Now, Allison, I have one final question for you. With respect to cleaning um, and cleaning products, I mean, are there any specific cleaning products that you recommend for, let's say I'm doing a clean-up in a home that had a water damage and there's people there that have multiple chemical sensitivity? I realize it may be a long shot, but is there any one particular cleaning product that seems to be more better tolerated, let's put it that way, by those with MCS than others?
4: You know, I was amazed, actually, to see that the American Lung Association on their fragrance-free workplaces now talk about cleaning with baking soda and white vinegar, which MCF people for years have been using baking soda and white vinegar, but I thought the rest of the world would kind of laugh at that. So I was surprised to see the American Lung Association saying it really works about us well. I always just tell people, well, go at least buy something from your local health food store, you know, buy something without fragrance. There is an organization called something like Inform Inc. I think that it's a nonprofit, and they concentrate on helping uh, large institutions like universities or something find safer cleaning products. And, um, but in general, health food store products are probably better than most. And of course, a lot of mainstream grocery stores are now carrying a lot of things Brands like Seventh Generation and things that are labeled fragrance free, et cetera. You can tell that more and more and more people are developing low grade chemical sensitivity just by the fact that so many products are now saying fragrance free. I mean, 30, 40 years ago when I was uh, reacting to perfume, which I don't much now, but it was like no one else around had that problem. Now, you know, there are so many people that say, oh, I don't like perfume, you know, and In that one survey, the Simon and Crest did, the phone survey, 30% of the respondents said they generally found it more irritating than appealing if they were near somebody wearing fragrance products. He wouldn't have found that, you know, 30 years ago. It's um, quite amazing, and that's why I want to, you know, alert the world to how serious MCS is because more and more people are developing it. It makes it harder and harder for those people to function, to remain in the workplace, means more people are on disability. We really need to arrest this trend before it goes any further so that we can keep people working, keep people living happy lives, not having to spend all their time trying to figure out a place to live and a place to work.
1: You know, I think you kind of just answered my last question, which is always, you know, is there anything you'd like to add? It sounded like you kind of summed things up real well there. Okay. Dieter, did you have another comment you wanted to make?
5: Just a quick comment, and I wholeheartedly agree with Alison. When I was a kid, I, I said it several times on there, I grew up with stone, with glass, uh, and, uh, uh, and wood. There were no chemicals in my environment. They were not invented. I'm sitting here at my desk. I'm looking at at least 50 or 60 uh, pieces of stuff on my desk, which are plastic. Uh, it's unbelievable. And the other thing that Allison said, and I agree with her, I have been preaching that for years, don't buy air fresheners. (laughs) You don't need them. Crack the window open and heck with it. Uh, They just cover it up, and they don't do anything other than a cover-up and add more chemicals to your environment, which we really don't need.
1: Well, Dieter, as always, great to have you. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we go? Um, no, I'm fine, Joe You're good to go? Alright, Cliff, thanks Uh This has been a great show, I'm looking forward to the blog this week I want to thank our guest, Allison Johnson The chair of the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation Great job, Allison, thanks for joining us And hopefully I'll see you down the road somewhere Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to this week's guest, Allison Johnson, with the Chemical Sensitivity Foundation. I want to thank Steve Teams for uh, getting us hooked up. Appreciate that, Steve. Uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for joining us as always. And my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, uh, another great show Always host. a pleasure. Good to have you. And, of course... At the controls, Jessica Lawson. Without a glitch again, we're on a roll. Uh, we think we got all the all the gremlins uh, out of my computer, and everything's fixed. Things are going going really well. I don't think we've confirmed for certain next week's guest. Do you know Cliff? No, I'll,
0: I'll, I haven't checked my email yet, Joe. So let's just leave it open till.
1: We got an answer. Leave that open. The week after that, Cliff and I will be at Purdue uh, with Dr. Randy Rapp. We're going to do a show right from the Purdue uh, International Conference that's coming up out there. I've been putting a link to that on every show announcement. Check it out, and if you happen to be going, please stop and say hello to uh, Cliff and I while you're there. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks. Most importantly, to our growing group of little listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of. IAQ Radio.
3: conditions, 18 plus.